Hello everybody, this is the ninth sermon looking at the book of Exodus. Today we are in Exodus 15, looking at verses 1 to 21. And our title is Worship, the Framework of Our Lives. Human beings naturally celebrate success. In moments of victory, they instinctively want to sing. Emily and I learnt this to our dismay a few years ago. My football team had got to the playoff final at Wembley. Emily and I were living in Bromley at the time, so we got the train up from South London to attend the game. At first it went well, Wickham took an early lead and led on for the majority of the match. Sadly, things then began to deteriorate. We let a last-minute goal in to take the game to extra time. Then it went on to penalties, and yes, sadly, in the end, we lost despite being the better team, I might add. I was gutted. I'm not always the cheeriest soul to be around when my team has lost a big game. However, things were about to get decidedly worse for my mood. We boarded the train back from Wembley into London. Unfortunately, the team we had lost to was Southend. So all their fans were in the same train, while all the Wickham fans were on trains heading in the opposite direction. It was miserable, let me tell you, listening to them singing and chanting, banging drums, waving flags, all the way home. I zipped up my jacket to hide my shirt and sat there silently fuming. Eventually we got home and went to bed, thinking it would all be better by morning. But there was one final ignominy to come. Some of our neighbours over the road were, well, yes, you guessed it, South End fans. We could still hear them singing and chanting with great delight right into the early hours of the morning. I remember pulling the pillow over my head and vowing that I would take great delight whenever Wickham beat Southend in the future. Humans naturally celebrate triumph, and the most common way we do this is to sing. The Old Testament is actually full of songs. They come throughout its pages from a variety of sources and situations. Of course, in the Psalms, we have a book dedicated to songs and prayers and nothing else. Often, we will read of the command to sing a new song. This happens when an event of great significance has taken place that needs to be remembered and celebrated. Most commonly of all, that event will have been a great victory for the nation in some way. The fact that Israel are commanded to sing new songs from time to time demonstrates the fact that they were still singing the old ones. When a song was written, it became part of the community. The people memorised it and sang it regularly so that its message would go on encouraging them. This is exactly the same as what churches do today. Songs are written and the ones that help people the most are kept and sung again and again down through the years. We all have our favourites. We all know the songs that we start to sing when we're looking for encouragement and inspiration, or if we just want to celebrate. The song in our reading today is one of those favourites. One of those songs that became rooted within the hearts and lives of the Jewish people. We know this because centuries later, other characters in the Bible would begin to sing. People like Hannah and Mary and they would quote the words and images of this victory song in Exodus 15. In a very real way then, worship becomes the framework of our lives, or the frame of reference through which we experience life through. 
I want us to think about this word framework for a minute. I looked it up in the dictionary this week. A framework is the supporting structure around which something can be built. A framework is a system of rules, ideas and beliefs that is used to plan or decide something. A framework is the structure, agenda, context or basis for something important. The Bible teaches us that this is exactly what worship is for followers of God. Worship of God is the supporting structure around which we build our lives. Worship of God is the system of rules and beliefs that sets the agenda for our lives and from which we make all of our decisions. Worship is the basis of who we are. We're made to worship God and enjoy him forever. I want us to think then today of worship as the framework of our lives. I want us to think about what worship is and why it is important. And I'm going to use the letters from the word frame to lead us through this passage. The first letter in the word frame is F, and this is going to stand for focus. Worship focuses us on who God is. Above all else, worship declares who God has revealed himself to be. This song in Exodus 15 is packed full of titles and descriptions of God. The Israelites sing, the Lord is my strength and my defence, my salvation, verse 2. The Lord is my God and my father's God, verse 2 again. The Lord is a warrior, verse 3. The Lord is Yahweh, I am who I am, the God who gave his name so we might call upon him, verse 3 again. The Lord is majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, a worker of wonders, verse 11. He's unique, there's no one like him. The Lord reigns, verse 18. He is king forever, sovereign over all of his creation. Truly, the most important thing about worship is that it focuses our attention on God. Worship should not just be about us and our emotions, though they are important to express at times. Worship should make us look up, up from our woes, up from our trials, up from our sin, and make us gaze upon God. It instructs us in praise and adoration, just as the Lord is due. That is why public worship Sunday by Sunday is so important. We easily get distracted Monday to Saturday. We easily get bogged down. But as we gather to sing, we bring our attention back onto God, the one who should be setting the agenda for our life. Worship focuses us on who God is, and we need that more than anything else. The second letter in the word frame is R, and this is going to stand for remember. Worship helps us to remember what God has done. It is difficult to know what to call this song in Exodus 15. Some call it the song of Moses, others the song of Miriam. My preference is for those commentators who refer to it as the song of the sea. For this title does not put the emphasis on who sang it, but on why they sang it. Israel have just witnessed God win an extraordinary victory over the greatest power in the world of the day. They've seen God firsthand humiliate Egypt's gods, defeat Pharaoh's evil regime and set them free from slavery. This song was written to commemorate the victory God won at the Red Sea and to ensure that God's people never forgot it. The first 11 verses are all words of remembrance, declaring what God has done. They contain vivid, poetic imagery to 
burn the story into the people's memories. Listen again. Verse 1 and 4. The Lord hurled Pharaoh's chariots, army and horses into the sea. Verse 6. The Lord's right hand shattered the enemy. In verse 7 to 10. The song declares how God controlled the most powerful forces of creation to achieve his own ends. The Lord piled up the waters into standing ways and then blew them back down again. This song is a song of victory and one that was brought about by the Lord's hand alone. Israel had very little part in this. In verses 6 to 13, there are 13 you or yours referring to God. Your right hand, you threw down, you unleashed, you blew. Who is like you, Lord God? This song helps God's people to remember the power of the Lord. Just what lengths he went to in order to rescue them and just what potential he has to save them when they're in trouble again in the future. It's so important as believers that we consistently remember who God is and what he has done for us. These truths define who we are and keep us going. Still today, our worship should help us to remember God's acts in the past. But worship should not just keep us in the past. The third letter in the word frame is A, and this is going to stand for Anticipate. Worship helps us to anticipate God's future. If the first 11 verses help the Israelites to remember the great victory God won at the Red Sea, the second half of the song is very much fixed on the future. After all, it's as we remember God's faithfulness in the past that we gain the confidence to look into the daunting unknown. For we know that God's promises will hold us firm there, come what may. Verses 12 to 18 affirm in advance, by faith, what God will do in the days ahead. Back in Egypt, the Lord promised Israel that after he'd set them free, he would bring them to himself and allow them to settle down in the promised land. From there they would take root and grow. From there they would spread out to bring blessing to the whole world. The people of Israel have no idea what is ahead of them really, But because of what they've seen at the Red Sea, they know that God will do what he promised. So they sing about it as if it has already happened. God will guide the people to his holy dwelling, verse 13. God will defeat their enemies and protect them from harm, verse 14 to 16. God will plant them in the land that he has prepared and the people will know peace, verse 17. Worship lifts our heads up to God and points us forward to what will be. God's purposes will be achieved. Nothing can stop them. Worship then is designed to fill God's people with hope and assurance and to encourage them to live in a way that speeds God's end rather than hindering it. So worship remembers the past and anticipates the future. But it should not surprise us to know that it does something to us in the present as well. The fourth letter in the word frame is M. And it stands for ministers. Worship ministers to us as we participate in it. If we stop and think, we know this to be true. We can have had a really difficult week. We can have been full of worry, sadness, grief or pain. And yet having spent time with God's people worshipping together in church, somehow we're encouraged, reassured, lifted up. 
worship and song in particular enables God to work deep within our hearts and to bring comfort to our souls. In Exodus 15, Israel have just left Egypt. They've been there 430 years. For every single Israelite, the confines of slavery had been all they had ever known. Suddenly they're out in the wild air of freedom. Everything is now unknown. Their daily timetable is completely different. They're in a land they've never seen before. They have no roof over their heads and no obvious food or water. Israel may be free, but they're incredibly disorientated. It's a bit like those stories of abuse you read of on the news. When a person is released after being subjected to cruelty for a long time, they still want to be shut away indoors for there they feel safest, even though the threat is over. It is, after all, all they have ever known. It takes a lot of gentle reassurance over a considerable period of time to coax them out and for them to begin to really live. In verse 13, we read these words. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Yes, those words are God's people anticipating the future, but they are also the words through which God ministers in the present. As they sing, they are assured of God's love. They experience his strength and encouragement. God works on them as they worship, fanning into flame an awareness of his love for them deep inside their hearts. But notice this as well. Worship also ministers to outsiders that witness it. The song of the Israelites speaks a word to the surrounding nations. From verse 14 onwards, the song carries a message for the leaders of Israel's enemies. It is a warning to Philistia, Edom, Moab and all the people of Canaan not to mess with the Lord's people. Indeed, as they hear this song, they should tremble and fear God and fall in reverence before him. Now, this might sound a a little unlikely. I was not converted by the singing of those South End fans as they extolled the virtues of their team on the train. But that was because I was hard-hearted. My allegiance was already set on Wickham and will never move. There are plenty of children who are still to decide on which team they will support. Witnessing a victory celebration can be very convincing. In the same way, for those with ears to hear, worship ministers the call of God. In the run-up to Christmas, we read the story of Rahab. She was a prostitute in the Canaanite city of Jericho. Yet amongst all the evil of that city, Rahab had come to a place where she feared the God of Israel. And as a result, she went out of her way to help his people. Where did Rahab get that faith from? Well, the text tells us that she'd heard what the Lord had done. Listen to what Rahab said in verses 8 to 10 of Joshua 2. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Rahab had heard about what happened at the Red Sea 40 years earlier. Yes, news of the events would have been passed by word of mouth, but surely also the songs of Israel became known. Their singing was heard, their worship was witnessed, and it sent a message to all who came into contact with it. 
The worship of Israel did not just minister encouragement to them. It ministered about God to the enemy, even converting some of them like Rahab. Truly the singing of the Lord's song is powerful indeed. This then leads us to the final letter of the word frame, which is E. In this case, E stands for embeds. Worship embeds us in the community of God's people. The Bible is clear that faith is a personal thing. We will all be held to account for our personal response to who God is and what he has done. And only we can believe no one can do it for us or follow God on our behalf. Faith is personal. And you do see that in this song. The Israelites declare, I will sing. I will sing to my strength, my defence, my saviour. The Lord is my God. Worship is not real if we do not mean it from our own hearts. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that faith is experienced, communicated and lived out corporately. Faith is always personal, but never private. This song of the sea, celebrating God's victory over Pharaoh, was not sung by one person alone. Verse 1 tells us that Moses and the Israelites sang this song. Then from verse 20 onwards, we see how worship brings the whole community of God's family together, blending their talents and spiritual gifts as it does so. Miriam takes up her tambourine and begins to sing along. Indeed, all the women followed, shaking tambourines and dancing. This is a real party. There's a right racket going on here. This celebration is overflowing with joy. As this song is sung, there is a blur of movement. This is a long way away from how we sing in church. So staid, so stationary, so solemn. Though there is a time for devout respect, there is also the time for festival. Worship that goes with a tap of the feet, a waving of hands and a broad beaming smile on our faces. But the significance of all this is that worship in this way binds God's people together. Everyone has a part to play. Every voice is required. Every dance step adds to the riot of colour. This is worship to participate in. And when it ends, you know that you are part of God's people. In the days ahead, Israel will be sorely tested. The sense of unity developed in their times of worship will be vital. I hope we now have a good idea of why this song was sung, recorded and passed down through the generations. I hope we better understand its content and the effect it had on the people, as well as offering the praise to God that he was due. And through this sermon, I've tried to explain why worship is still important for our lives today. It still focuses us on God remembers God's saving work in the past, anticipates his future, ministers to us in the present and embeds us in God's people. But of course, we're not to spend our time just singing about victory at the Red Sea. For the work of the Exodus was just a shadow, a signpost to a far greater work of salvation by God that was still to come. As Christians, we're not just to sing songs of the sea, but songs of the cross and empty tomb. Our worship is still to be focused on God, but on God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Specifically, God as he revealed himself in Jesus. Our worship is to remember how Jesus died to forgive us our sin and rose again to defeat evil and death and grant us eternal life. 
Our worship is to anticipate the return of Jesus, the day he will appear to put all things right and make all the world his renewed promised land of blessing. Our worship is to be the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit ministers to us in times of need and evangelises to all onlooking unbelievers. Our worship is to embed us in the church, to make us feel part of God's people where every voice and talent matters and is required. Worship of Jesus as he is due is still to form the frame of our lives. I believe then that we all have a song to sing. If worship is the frame to build our lives around, we must work at erecting it. As we work at worship, even in the times when it's difficult and we don't much feel like singing, our worship will begin to work on us. God will use it to keep us going and to grant us all we need. Of course, we have focused on singing today, for we have been reading the words of a song. But worship is not confined to singing. Whatever you find helpful to focus you on God and to give your praise to him is to be done. Whether that be reading liturgy, creating art, listening to music, lighting candles, watching videos or reciting psalms. We should continue to worship God in good times and bad, for through it, God will work on us. Even in this pandemic, may worship be the framework, the agenda, the basis of our lives. May God be pleased with our worship and may others be drawn to him through it. <laughs>